Hey, Sherry Masons. Does that one work? I don't know, but I will defend it. And speaking of defenses and fictional defense attorneys, today we'd like to encourage you to donate to a few organizations who provide very non-fictional defense attorneys to those in need and who are just out there fighting inequality in our not very just justice system. Organizations such as the Equal Justice Initiative or the NAACP Legal Defense and Education Fund. So was my Perry Mason pun a stretch? Yes but I made it work. And now let's get to work on today's episode. Welcome. To Arcade Audio. Welcome back to Shared History. Uh, Cass? History. Is it in you? (laughs) Oh, no. No, (laughs) thank you. It's in all of us, is it not? (laughs) Apparently. (laughs) You know, sometimes I cringe at the taglines, and by sometimes I mean most of the time. You know what the funny thing is, is we've got a shared document of all of these, like, taglines of different companies and brands and stuff and natalie i'm pretty sure you put that one in from gatorade i did i'm sure i did and i regret it already oh boy i am your host nat younger i'm your other host Cass maher and forever on the ones and twos but not with us in voice tonight the beloved dj rip I was going to do a DJ rip impersonation, but I'm not going to. You'll never be enough, Cass. No no one can be DJ rip, but DJ rip. DJ rip is turning the dobs and the niles. The knobs and the tiles. (laughs) (laughs) It's been a long day, you guys. Um, He's turning all the things, but he's not uh, going to be able to jump in on the episode today because of remote recording and all that that entails. And Cass, since uh, since you're on the struggle bus with <laughs> making words with your mouth, <laughs> why don't uh, you take this next bit? I'm uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna take us on a little bit of a a pivot. I'm gonna give you a break. I'm gonna give you a break, Cass. You Bless look you. like you need a break. Um, because you don't have to share a story tonight. Mm-mm. Because our guest tonight is women's history scholar and a visiting professor of history at DePaul University. Go Blue Demons. That's my alma mater. It's okay. (laughs) Her new book, The Virtuous and Violent Women of 17th Century Massachusetts, comes out on August 28th. It's Dr. That's right. We legit now. It's Dr. Emily Romeo. Hello, Emily. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Thank you for coming on and legitimizing. Le- now I can't talk. Legitimizing <laughs> I, us tenfold. I'll tag in Natalie. <laughs> yeah. Um, legitimizing us. Yes. And also, one of the most badass titles for a book ever. I must say. Can you say? Thank that? you. Can you say that again, Natalie. <laughs> the virtuous and violent women of 17th century Massachusetts. We've got alliteration. We've got. <laughs> 
Massachusetts. I'm really just stoked about the alliteration mostly I'm missing. <laughs> I'm always here for alliteration. Virtually. You know, I really wanted to avoid the colon that you see in all other sort of academic texts. Yes. You know, I wanted it short and sweet, to the point, right, descriptive. I, I respect pre- that. I appreciate that. I had a professor in college who would dock us points if we had a title with a colon in it. She's like, it's just, it's just, if you can't come up with a title without a colon in it, it's, I don't know. She didn't like it. So I didn't do it. And I respect it. Yeah, I agree. (laughs) Uh, I just love, so when Emily agreed to be on, sorry, when when Dr. Romeo. Emily is fine. Good job. I'm going to keep saying doctor as much as I can. Uh, Agreed to be on. She was, she was like briefly kind of told me what her areas of interest were and like what her book was about. And I lost my mind because I was like, what a, what a, what a DePaul university class. <laughs> Cause I took some really interesting like classes at DePaul that I say what it was about and, or what it was called in the English department. And people have been like, I'm sorry, what now? Um, <laughs> And so just before we started recording, uh, Emily told us that she taught a, a sex a history of sex class. Yes, indeed. From the Puritans to the Victorians. <gasps> Great. There's so much to cover. <laughs> so much to talk about. <laughs> oh, it's a lot. It's a lot. Um, oh, man. So, Emily, you, you clearly the kind of puritanical Victorian, that era, women's history, is that, that clearly seems to be your go-to, your, your favorite kind of history that you naturally gravitate towards it sounds like yeah my specialty is certainly the colonial period so Mm -hmm. the late 16th early 17th century I teach mostly the colonial and the revolutionary period when I do more of a sort of a a topical class like the history of sex I'll expand it a little bit longer in terms of the chronology in this case I really wanted to explore Right, sex from the Puritan period through the Victorian period and sort of see how they changed, but also in many ways remained the same in terms of sort of social ideas about sex and sexuality and cultural norms and all of that. Uh, I teach a lot of sort of sort of standard overview classes um, of early American history, but I always throw in a lot of women's history, probably more than most of my students have come across before. And I love stories of troublesome women. I just can't seem to avoid them. It's, it's interesting because all of our guests that we have on, we ask, um, before we ask them what their subject is that they're going to talk about, we ask, like, you know, what, do you, what kind of history do you naturally, like, gravitate towards or like? But we haven't had anyone who's been a professor of or their job is history. So it seems like mm-hmm. a weird question to ask because it's your job is probably what you naturally gravitate towards. So outside of what you generally teach, is there a different kind of bit of history you kind of always love? to learn more about or to look into outside of the um, Well, the, the book focuses on women as perpetrators of violence, mm-hmm. right? which is a topic that you don't usually hear about associated mm-hmm. especially with Puritan New England, right? or really early, early modern history in general. Um, and so my book really, you know, my, my work in general really sort of turns this image on its head of these really sort of tame, really well-behaved, right, New England good wives who dutifully go to church and remain silent and, you know, do everything that their husbands tell them to do. And the women that I look at are very different from that image. Um, These women are beating up tax collectors, right, in their homes and in the streets. The woman I'm going to tell you about today is 
has a wild tail, right? That that is frankly extraordinarily gruesome. Um, so okay. I, you know, I just yeah, I, I sort of I love to turn people's ideas about women and about gender, you know, on on their head. Yeah, awesome. especially especially during that time because I feel like. I will, I will full disclosure, Cass and I say a lot of the pod that neither of us are big fans of studying American history. Um, however, so many episodes, especially in this season, have been U.S. history. Um, well, it's funny because, I mean, Emily, like you said, that you throw in more, more in your classes about women that most of your students probably aren't used to. Natalie, I think mm-hmm. you and I kind of always land on the fact that we never really gravitated towards or enjoyed studying U.S. history because it's you just get the same highlights in every class mm-hmm. you take. It's, you know, it's very homogenous. It's very, it's it's not boring, but it's, it's, it's just we're not a young. We're a younger country. And yeah. yet, and yet we, I, I always felt like in my American history education, we didn't go deep into areas that I would have been very excited. Like we we would cover like the cover like the civil war would take like 2 months and then we'd cover the civil rights movement in like a week. And yeah. I was like this I don't why are we do- what? And it's and um, most of my favorite topics we've covered on the the podcast have been American history because people are delving into lesser known histories to people that we should be hearing about or stories of perspectives that we don't get in school. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, honestly, when I was studying history, when I, you know, in in high school, even in my undergrad years in college, the way they taught history was boring. I mean, it's it's old white guy history the way that it's taught. They teach the same topics over and over again, right? I mean, you hear all about right Jamestown, then you hear about the founding fathers, and then you hear about you know, the Civil War, and it's always about men, and it's always about these battles, and it's always about these huge events. You don't hear the personal stories behind the history. Yeah. And that's what really captures my imagination yeah. and my interest, right, is is sort of what I, I call, with my students, I call it the dirty history, right? And I don't mean sexual, that's part of it, right? <laughs> I mean, right, the I want history that you can smell, mm. if you know what I mean, right? I want to yeah. hear the sounds of history. I want to... You know, I want to I want to know what people were experiencing in that moment. And that's just not the history that's being taught in our schools today, which is a shame because people, because so many students are put off by it. Yeah. People don't want to engage in something that it's is not so, real. To it's them. not real. No. You want to learn about something that feels real, that feels like um, someone you could see and touch and hear. And it, and it doesn't. Yeah, it doesn't feel real without like the personal connection to people. And then also we, we talk about it periodically on the podcast like context of yeah like what what led to this moment what came right after um other than a timeline of big battles and whatnot right we tend to get that tends to be our quote-unquote context i feel like in history books yeah of course so uh i'm ready and excited to learn about some troublesome women. I just Ooh. like the phrase troublesome chills. women. I yes. consider myself well, a troublesome woman, so. Very good. Um, I have one specific woman that I wanted to focus on today. Um, I have numerous other stories, right, that I could share, you know, at, perhaps at, an, at another moment. 
Um, but the woman I want to talk about today is a woman named Hannah Dustin. Ooh. Have you either of you heard of her? No. I have not. Hannah Dustin? Hannah Dustin. It's spelled D-U-S-T-I-N and D-U-S-T-A-N, alternatively, in the, right, in the records. Unfortunately, in the 17th century, spelling was not normalized or standardized at that point, and people mm-hmm. even spelled their own names differently in different occasions. Mm. So that makes researching them really interesting and frustrating. <laughs> so I'm going to talk about right, this woman, Hannah Dustin, who committed an unimaginably bloody uh, act of brutality in the wilderness in 1697, right, in the, wilder- the frontier wilderness of Massachusetts. So to give it some context, to understand what yeah, was going on at the time, <laughs> you have to understand the relationship between English settlers and native peoples of the region in the late 17th century. So basically the entire 17th century in New England was a series of wars being fought between English settlers and the native peoples who already lived there, right? So... King Philip's War, for instance, even before that, the Pequot War, where the Pequot people were essentially decimated and the Puritans committed an act of incredible genocide. Um, and then there's King William's War that followed after it. And so there's just, so the, the Puritans come in, they steal right, Native American land right, in horrible ways. And then, of course, right, the Native Americans fight back. And so then you have right, raiding back and forth, incredible loss of life throughout basically the entire 17th century. Some of these are the, some of the bloodiest battles fought in American history per capita, but we just don't talk about them because they were taking place right, in a relatively short period of time and in a relatively right, small geographic location. Mm. Right? So around 1677, Hannah gets married. Her, her um, maiden name is Hannah Emerson. She gets married to a man named Thomas. Now, Thomas Dustin had been fighting in King Philip's War, right, along with his fellow militiamen, and he had seen a lot of action in the war. He was probably involved in a huge battle called the Great Swamp Fight, where he watched 70 of his fellow soldiers die, in addition to at least 300 Narragansett Indian peoples as well on the other side. So he's returning back from that conflict. He marries Hannah. They're living on the frontier. They want, so they're living in Haverhill, Massachusetts, which is really considered the frontier at the time. Now, it's, it's really not that far from Boston, so we don't think of it as being the frontier, but for the 17th century, it was pretty far out there. It was pretty remote, right? So they're living right next to, right, basically a few different Indian tribes at the time. So they're trying to sort of put their lives back together. You know, they're trying to establish a household, um, he's a bricklayer and a farmer, and so they're trying. They're, they have kids. Hannah has. She gives birth to twelve children in all. Oh my gosh. Of her life, which is actually pretty common for the time. Women yeah. had enormous families. I thought you were going to say which was actually pretty conservative for the time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just a cool dozen. We've had a, yeah, we've had a few topics on the on the podcast where. We're about to say, like, how many children the person has, and I just, like, clench, and I'm like, oh, my gosh. Yeah. Who was yeah. it? Sybil Luddington had 11? <laughs> Natalie, Yes, her right? siblings. Yes. Ugh. Yeah, I mean, there's... Woof. These poor women and what they had to go through. Yeah, I you mean, would be violent, too. Yeah, <laughs> right? If I had 12 children, I would be super pissed off as well. <laughs> <laughs> so... So they're living their lives, but the Indian threat is always there, right? So they're living on the frontier. Eventually their house is turned into actually a garrison house, which is basically just a house that they um, fortify to fight against native peoples and the attacks from them. So 
things die down for a while, they're raising their kids, right? But then again, in 1688, another war breaks out, King William's War. And this time, it's the French allied with native peoples in the region. And a few of Hannah's relatives are involved in this war. Several of her relatives are killed at something called uh, the Attack on Oyster River, where 230 Indians and 20 French Canadians burst into this village and destroy it utterly, um, taking people captive. Um, there's a, a really interesting quote from, that describes the attack. It says, Before the sun was two hours high, 45 of its people were tomahawked and scalped, laying in grotesque heaps among the smoldering timbers of their homes. So 49 people were taken captive in that raid, including Hannah's sister-in-law. So all of that was just to give you an idea of just how violent and just how much of a threat not only were the native peoples to the English, but the English were to the native peoples during this time. Okay. So in March 15, 1697, a group of Abenaki Indians, and I'm going to use Indians and Native Americans interchangeably. Right? It's, it's standard sort of procedure for historians yeah. these days. Um, so Hannah had just given birth to her eighth child the week before. <laughs> Um, and when a group of Abenaki Indians descend on Haverhill, descend on her town, they murder at least 39 people, English settlers. They burn at least six of the houses, including Hannah's. So a dozen of them approach the Han Hannah, the Dustin residence, um, where Hannah and her midwife, a woman named Mary Neff, are hiding. Hannah's husband is able to escape with seven of their eight children. But Hannah is recovering from having given, a birth, given birth just the week before, and she has an infant. And so she can't really leave. Right? So the Indians come into her house, they ransack it, they eventually right, burn it to the ground, and they drag Hannah, Mary Neff, and the infant child that Hannah's just had off into the wilderness. So they take also what they call half a score of English captives. A score, as you probably know, is, is 20. So they took about 10 captives. Um, and they're literally just sort of leading them on foot into the wilderness. Now, some of them are growing tired and lagging behind. Right? Those people are quickly killed with tomahawks um, and left just on the side of the trail. And of course, but Hannah why, is carrying. Why take them to begin with? <laughs> <laughs> well, they took them because they were hoping to ransom them. Mm. Right. They were hoping to sell them and back. And they became too much work because <laughs> exactly. they were take, they were holding up the holding up the whole crew. <laughs> right. Right. They're slowing them down too much, so they just right get rid of them. Now Hannah's infant, of course, is doing what infants do. Right. Just Cry. Crying. <laughs> Cry um, like the fresh, fresh baby it is. <laughs> yes, <laughs> the fresh baby. That's interesting. That's what I. That's that's what it's. <laughs> It is. It's it's a fresh baby, but fresh out of the oven. <laughs> this fresh baby what? is causing too much commotion for them too, and so they literally bash it against a tree and kill it on the spot. Oh no! And they leave it on the trail for, as the narr as the narrative said, the narrative that where we're getting all this information says for the birds and beasts to feed upon. So of course these people are Christians, not the native peoples, but right. Mm -hmm. Hannah and her family, and so they don't even give the child a quote-unquote Christian burial of any type, right? They just yeah. leave it there. So they travel about 150 miles on foot. Now remember, Hannah's just had a baby, but she somehow manages to keep up. Oh. She's just lost that baby, but still, right? Yeah. She perseveres. 
So she that alone could her, be end of the story, and like, yeah, wasn't right? that a feat? She keeps going. Oh my god! Yeah, she and Mary Neff keep going, and so they they are eventually sort of taken in by this Indian family of two men, three women, and seven children. And they're kind of living with them and, and sort of living as a servant. The group is still moving around, trying to avoid basically attacks from the English. Right? Yeah. They also come across a 14-year-old English boy named Samuel Leonardson, who'd, be, who'd been taken prisoner about 18 months before, but was living with the same group. Okay, so it's these three English settlers living uh, or sort of staying with this group of Abenaki. So on April 30th, 1697, Hannah and Mary hear a rumor that they're going to have to do something called run the gauntlet when they sort of reach the, na- the, the next main Indian village along their route. Now, they know that this is not going to be pretty, right? Literally, sort of settlers, some settlers have died while running the gauntlet. Do you know what I mean by running the gauntlet? No, but Natalie, I mean, in comedy sports, I'm go- Natalie and I, I'm going to make it happy a little bit. What is running the gauntlet at comedy sports, Natalie? Oh, running the gauntlet at comedy sports. I'm guessing it's not sports. as bad as what it's you're about probably, to tell us, Emily. Yeah. Uh, it's, running the gauntlet at comedy sports is... Especially when we have midnight shows, which we, I mean, obviously we've just been performing virtually right now. Um, but at comedy sports, there are often, uh, there's often an eight o'clock show. Wait. Six. I don't even. It's six, six eight, o'clock. and ten. Oh my God. I don't even know anymore. It's been so long. Because <laughs> uh, now they're at 7.30 and 9.30 online. Right. Um, <laughs> visit CSZChicago.com. Free shows. <laughs> there's, um. There's a six o'clock show and then there's an eight o'clock show. And then for a while, there was also a 10 10. o'clock show. So running the gauntlet referred to if you were scheduled to do all three of them in one night, to which the best advice ever given to me was hydrate. (laughs) Hydrate like your life depends on it. Something tells me, Emily, the gauntlet you're about to tell us is... A little harder than doing three 90-minute improv shows back to back to back. I, I imagine so. Um, I have not done either, so I can't really speak to it. Okay. That's true. But well, you heard it here first. Potentially three improv shows in a row is more difficult. I imagine running down um, sort of a tunnel of full-grown Native American men, running through them as they beat you as you pass, may, you know, at least equate to... Right. Very good. Okay, yep, yep. I'm going to say, ding, 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 Emily, your <laughs> <Yeah>. story wins. <laughs> <laughs> and yep. by wins, I mean... had it harder. Yes. Yes. So they hear they're going to have to do this the next time. Oh, my gosh. And so Hannah and Mary make a decision, right? They definitely want to escape at this point. And so they strategically wait until everyone is asleep. And they sneak right, right at daybreak... They sneak and they steal the tomahawks right, from their captors. They take them and they slaughter all 10 Indians in total. They bash in their skulls with axes until they no longer move or breathe. And afterwards, they then go on and scalp all of their Indian oh. captors with their own tomahawks. Oh. This is Hannah Dustin and Mary Neff and Samuel Oh, man. Robinson. That's some... That's some... You got that comes from deep inside of you to, yeah, pull that. Yeah. Oh, that's some anger and some rage. 
Yeah, I which did. is why I gave you the context I did. Yeah, oh yeah. Right? yeah. To understand a little bit of the rage, mm -hmm. right? Not that it justifies it, not by right. a long shot, but still, right? So not only do they do that, they then take the scalps, wrap them in a cloth, and put them in their pocket to keep. We'll talk about like, why in a minute. <gasps> okay. <laughs> Netta and I are so, staring at the screen. Like, like, oh, I'm oh, like we're listening guesses. to a ghost, ghost story. So they, yeah. yeah, so they take the bloody scalps. I imagine it wasn't for like fun crafts or anything. <laughs> no, it's not for fun crafts. And then uh, there's different tellings of the story. In some, in some t uh, versions of the story, they all, then they steal their canoes and paddle away. In other versions of the story, they escape on foot. But they make it back to English settlement. I thought it was just going to be like a fun jailbreak, and then it got really violent <laughs> really fast. No one's like digging a hole or pole vaulting over a wall. It's just yeah. straight up murder. Nobody's, nobody's hiding a tunnel behind like a poster of a half-naked woman. <laughs> We're not Shawshanking it here. <laughs> I'm disappointed. I'm shocked. I'm shocked and disappointed. <laughs> it's about to get even worse. Oh, no, no, Hannah. Yeah. Because I'm trying to eat while we're talking. <laughs> <laughs> I probably should have warned you not to do that. One That's more, on me. One more big That's bite, six, <laughs> six out of the ten Indians that they killed and scalped were children. Oh, no. No. Yeah. Children. Oh. So they make it back to quote-unquote civilization. Right? They make it back to English settlement. Yeah, it's a, that is subjective. I like that. <laughs> Quote, unquote, civilization. Yes, right? Considering what Hannah just did, seems <laughs> yep. appropriate. And none other than Cotton Mather hears about what she's done. All right? She has the, the scalps to prove it. Right? And she also takes the scalps to the Boston General Court and redeems them for scalp bounty. <gasps> which was something that existed at the time. The, the Massachusetts government would literally pay people to turn in Indian scalps per scalp. Right? And Hannah gets about $8,000 in current U.S. money. Oh, my turning gosh. In these scalps. Oh, my goodness. Right. So, Cotton Mather hears a story. Are you familiar with the Mathers in uh -uh. New England? No. Assume we know nothing. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Because so even Mathers when we pretend this, that we do, we're usually we don't. really... <laughs> famous family of Puritan ministers, right? Okay. There are three really famous Mathers. There's Richard Mather, Increase Mather, and Cotton Mather. Increase was an actual name that they gave to children <laughs> in the 17th century. Well, it increased your number of Mathers. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they did. So basically, any important event that takes place in colonial New England among the Puritans, there's a Mather involved, right? So we're talking... The Hannah Dustin narrative, we're talking the witch trials, we're talking it's like establishing the government, right? So establishing yeah, the church. Yeah, I was going to say almost everything I know about like Puritans, I know from the crucible. Yeah, I was going to say the same thing. <laughs> yeah. So the Mathers are involved. Cotton Mather hears the story of Hannah. He's intrigued, right? So he knows it's going to be a sensation, clearly. I mean, it's got all the elements of a great story. Right? Also, he knows it could be an excellent sort of piece of propaganda, anti-Indian and anti-French propaganda, because these Indians, of course, were allies with the French. Right? Always got to find a way to spin it. Always. <laughs> right? And the Mathers did this constantly in early New England. Yeah. So he's wondering, okay, how can I use this story, but how can I twist it, right, to turn Hannah into the heroine here, to make her into the hero of the tale? I imagine that, like, I imagine that with, like, colonists 
pretty much hating the Native Americans and being like fearful or angry at them most of the time. It wasn't that difficult to spin her right into the heroine. Right. Well, there's a few obstacles to turning her into a heroine. So I mean, she killed a bunch of children. Yeah. That's pretty. Mark that's against. one of the big ones. Right. And even for Puritans, killing six children. Right? Yeah. A little bit beyond yeah. the pale. Right, even if they were Indians. Um, also, Cotton Mather wants to spin her as this, you know, this mother who was living in sort of seething grief. But she waited like a month to commit the act she did from the time that they killed her child. So he's got to yeah. shorten up that time frame, right, which he does. Yeah. He also has to really, really play up right, her as the grieving mother, right? And then argue, of course, her act is justified. The taking mm. of ten lives is justified for the taking of one. Right. Right. And he also wants to turn her into like a heroine from the Old Testament. Right. He Naturally. wants to portray what she's done as like what those some of those women had done. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the story of Yael from the Old Testament. No. So he literally writes in the narrative that she's act that Hannah Dustin is doing the same thing as Yael. Yael is famous for killing an an enemy general of the Israelites. So an enemy of the Israelites. So she sort of welcomes him into her tent. He's tired from battle. She I says, come. I know this one. You know do this you, one? Natalie? Yeah, Look at you. Do. do you want to tell the rest of it? No, because I can't, <laughs> I can't even remember why I know it, which means that it's from a very distant, like, comparative religions or, like, religion history mm-hmm. class, which is yeah. very far away in my brain. <laughs> I mean, it's also a good story, right? So yeah. she invites him in. She gives him milk and honey, which I guess is something people ate then. And um, she says, you know, lay down and take a rest. And then when he's asleep, she picks up a tent stake and drives through his temple. <gasps> That's the ale. So Cotton Mather basically says, you know, Hannah, you know, Hannah did the same thing, right? But she's saving the new Jerusalem, right, that the Puritans are trying to build. Right? Yeah, the there's a rub. Right? There's some spin. But there's a problem. Right? Hannah's not a church member at the time. She wouldn't become a church member for like 20 years later. But also, again, he doesn't mention this. Yeah. Right? So he's jumping through all these hoops to try to make her story acceptable. And one of the main things he has to get rid of is her own personal agency in what she's done. Naturally. Right? Now she's a Puritan woman. Puritan women are not supposed to behave this way. They're not supposed to sort of take responsibility for their own, you know, their own behavior, mm-hmm. right? So other women who had been taken captive, they sort of waited around and prayed to God and sort of kept their faith that someone would come and rescue them, clearly not Hannah, mm. right? So he, he sort of makes all these leaps to try to make her story less about sort of personal agency and more about saving yeah. New Jerusalem, being a great mother, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, less about like, look, a woman made a decision and took like and took power and did this albeit horrific thing but powerful thing question right. mark and right. and more like no, our, now it's our guy god did it for her. yeah yeah guy god so there's another famous captor from a few years earlier named Mary Rollinson I don't know if you've heard her story mm-hmm. but she's sort of like the ultimate puritan woman she prays every day Right? That's how she survives her captivity. She, she compares herself to Job and being sort of long-suffering and, and patient and waiting for God to come and rescue her. And eventually, 
right, through the actions of other people, God comes and rescues her, right? And so she's what you're supposed to be. But then we have this Hannah Dustin person, right? And Mather wants to use the story, but he knows he has to make some changes to do so. Also, Hannah comes from a kind of a problematic family. The Emersons are a little bit shady. Mm. So okay. her father has gotten in trouble, actually brought before the court for beating her sister Elizabeth Ooh. with something called a flail swingle, which is something that was used for threshing grain. Also, her sister was hung for infanticide a few years before Hannah was taken captive. Oh, no. Right? Also, a few of the Emersons were mixed up in the witch trials in okay. Essex County as well. Right? So we so have to kind of gloss over all against. these issues. What's that? She's got some marks against. Yeah. Yeah, she totally does. But Cotton Mather's willing to overlook those and gloss all those over so he can use the story as this sort of propaganda piece, and he does. Right? So, right, we also know that the economic considerations for Mather, they don't seem to bother him, right, as much as they will bother people later on. Right? It's clear that the reason they took the scalps is to prove what they did but also to get this scalp bounty. Mm -hmm. Because Hannah's house had been destroyed, Mary Neff was a widow by the end of the war, and so they're able to actually turn this action into something that's profitable, Mm. right? Which is really the most, one of the most disturbing aspects of the tale. So they make it back, right? They, Cotton Mather publishes her story three separate times, right? It goes, it goes, basically, it's a bestseller all over, right, New England at the time. And she becomes basically a star. Um, this is like the so, precursor to Chicago the Musical. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yes, so, yes, so, yes, they both. Yeah. A little different from compared to, like, killing your husband. Yeah. A little, di- a little different. It's a puritanical version. Oh, wait, speaking of husband, when she got back, was Thomas, like, was Thomas Dustin still... Yeah, what? Did he had like, he had, like returned fan? to their town? Like, yeah. Okay. He had. He and the rest of the children had actually made it out just fine. But like, so were they? Were they? Had they like? Because they ran away. So then, had they like returned and were back? Are so they when all she together? and Mary Neff came staggering out of the woods, presumably covered in blood that is not their own. Right. Um, I'm making this very cinematic. Uh, <laughs> were so it was seven seven of her children and. And her husband yeah. were, like, there waiting for her, basically? Essentially, yes. They came back to Haverhill. They rebuilt. They actually built a nicer house made of brick. You can actually go and visit the house today. It still stands in Haverhill. You can see the house that they built after her return. Um, oh, yeah. It's Dustin Garrison house. Of course. Make a brick house. Come on. <laughs> right? Yeah. It was a bricklayer. He actually, they actually did pretty well financially. I mean, they had the boon of the eight grand from mm. Hannah's, you know, scout bounty. <laughs> yeah. So... Yeah, so they, she, she basically just goes back to living her life, right? And so people wonder, right? The, the question always with Hannah Dustin, well, there's several questions, but one, right? How could she possibly do this, right? How could she morally justify doing this, even as a grieving mother? But how could she physically accomplish it, right? But you have to remember at this time period, as a colonial good wife, and they were... I would say like lower class, lower middle class. They didn't use the term class. It's anachronistic, but that's how we can think of it. Yeah. She was probably pretty strong, right? Yeah. And so think about just how sort of labor intensive and how much strength you would have to have to do the things that she did around the house, let alone like having 12 children, 
right? Doing laundry, which was a two-day process. And she also would have slaughtered children. her own animals. Oh, right? God, yeah. So she probably would have known how to pick up a pig by its hind legs, slit its throat, drain all the blood, right? And then butcher it, which I think helps explain a little bit physically how she was able to right, deal with that much blood and, and slaughtering these Native Americans, who, of course, she would not even regard as human for the most part. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and so, of course, like, clearly Hannah's, the legacy of Hannah Dustin is really problematic, right? And so people have continued to debate whether or not we should consider her a hero or a villain. Um, she actually has a statue in the middle of Haverhill that still stands today. It was placed there in 1879 by the, um, in the, basically the middle of the town square, the General Army of the Republic Square still stands today. She was one of the first American women to get a statue in her honor, believe it or not. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, I mean, and so every decade or so, this debate arises yet again in and around Haverhill, right, about whether or not she should be honored or whether or not they should try to sort of, you know, um, sweep her history, you know, sort of under the rug, as it were. Dust in it. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I had to. Also, I just pulled up a picture of the statue, and there's two here. One of them, she's yeah. got, like, a, an axe in her hand, like a little hatchet, and then she's just pointing. It looks like she's pointing at someone and be like, don't you dare. And then yes. there's another one where she's in this kind of, like, flowy gown off the shoulder and then just holding scalps in her hand. That's not a statue. That's a liquor bottle. Wait, what? what? The second one you're describing is a Jim Bean liquor bottle from uh, New Hampshire. Oh, no, that's not. But there is a liquor bottle. That's the one that's in New Hampshire, that statue. Yeah. But there is also a liquor bottle that was made in her likeness that they made in the 1970s. Oh, my gosh. What a weird... What a weird... Th- I mean, never mind. They make, like, <laughs> vodka bottles shaped like AK-47s. So. <laughs> it was just... I mean, because I don't know when when this one was made, but especially knowing, like, the Puritans and whatnot, the one with her just holding the axe, she's like, you know, we're not seeing any collarbone. We're covered to the ankles and the wrists. And then the other one, she's like, we're, you know, shoulders out. We've got a bosom and, like clingy flow. I was like, okay, I don't think the Puritans made that statue. No, not at all. I mean, it's, it's clearly from the 19th century, right, as opposed yeah. to the 17th. Uh-huh. The same with the liquor bottle. She's wearing a very sort of scandalous gown off the shoulder, and she's holding two bloody scalps in her hand on the, on the liquor bottle. Oh. She's like, it's, she's like Venus de Milo, but like but Venus de murder. <laughs> <laughs> you know, whatever sells Jim Beam. <laughs> They can use the help, apparently. So there's still members of the extended Dustin family that live in and around Haverhill and love her. One of them, I'm informed, is probably going to be listening to this podcast when it's released. So hopefully I don't get too many death threats because they do really love her. Um, Yeah, I went to go see the Dustin house a few years ago. um, And I got to run into a few of them. They are extremely intense and very proud of their history. Oh, gosh darn it, I'm just gonna scooch on right past ya and drop this ad. Today's episode is sponsored by Raygun, Midwestern mega nerds and purveyors of fine clothes with words on them. Raygun has been called the greatest store in the universe by Raygun. 
They are the most important clothing store Earth has seen since the early Mesozoic era. They specialize in timely witticisms, t-shirts, and modesty. If you breathe oxygen and wear clothes when you go places, you'll love it. And yes, this is a real ad, and Raygun is a real company with real stores in the Midwest, which is a real place. Or you can shop online at raygunsite.com, that's R-A-Y-G-U-N-S-I-T-E.com. Use promo code PEWPEW for free shipping and sick laser finger guns. Now back to the show! Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting you say, like... I mean, the story in general, it's, it's, yeah, it's, do you play her as a hero? Do you play her as a villain? And then what's the actual story? And regardless, you're captive and forget morals. You got to survive. And that's, fuck, she survived. She did survive, but she also, I think what... I, I teach the story to my students. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I have them debate at the end of class, like, do you think she was a villain or do you think she was a hero? And their takes are really fascinating. Yeah. Because a lot of them are arguing that, yes, she did what she had to do to survive. Yes, she was a grieving mother, but she didn't need to take those scalps. Mm. Right? She didn't need to economically profit yeah. from the mm-hmm. action that she did. Right. Yeah. Also, she didn't need to kill the children. No. Right? Yeah. There were six children that she slaughtered in what she did. And there was no reason that she had to do those to escape. Well, it's, in- yeah. it's interesting what you said, too, is is the... And, and I'm so glad you set the context, too, of the antagonism between the French yeah, and the, the English mutual, and the, mutual the, threat. the allies that the, that the French and the English made with Native Americans of the time. And that... Whatever your uh, chosen Native American ally was, you are going to, you know, they didn't think much of them to begin with. If you're the enemy Native American tribe, like you said, like they, she probably didn't consider them as, as human or, you know, definitely mm-hmm. not at the level of her. So then does that, you know, in her mind, does that justify it? It's, yeah. whoa. Yeah. There's and a I explained how she had had. Family members killed in previous wars with Native Americans. She had had family members taken captive before. Yeah. yeah. They did. I mean, they killed her baby in front of her. I can understand why she would be looking for revenge. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. But she also waited like a month and a half, you know, after they killed her baby to strike. Was it just the, the threat of the gauntlet maybe? I guess so. um, Because... Clearly, like, she probably wasn't super tight with the family she was, you know, all pairing at the time. <laughs> Evidently not, since she was willing to slaughter them and scalp them. Yeah. 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 Well, and it's interesting because it's like she definitely didn't need to take this the scalps for, for two reasons. She didn't. One, it is immediately being like, yes, I'm going to economically benefit from this. But I'd argue she didn't need the scalps to prove what happened to her because everyone in the town knew that the town got attacked and ransacked and then she was missing. So they would have drawn the conclusion that she was taken. Uh, And like, I don't know. I just. Yeah, I don't think she was covering her ass. Yeah, I don't I don't believe I don't. Yeah, I don't believe that she was like, well, I needed it as proof because. I feel like context and other people's experiences and her saying, well, I was taken captive and I escaped and even here's how was 
proof enough. Yeah, I don't think she would. Maybe she wouldn't needed it to, to prove it. But it's it's interesting too if you put it in the context of what people felt about biology at the time, and what their ideas were about race. So. They, people in the early modern period honestly believed that your physical person could change depending on your environment. So they, for instance, at first, they didn't think that the Native Americans were a separate race per se. They were white men who had gone into the wilderness and turned wild. What? And so, yeah. And so they believed that, well, they believed in like, you know, theories of humors and basically that your mm-hmm. biology could fluctuate. Men could turn into women and vice versa. <gasps> what? Depending on what you did and, and who you surrounded yourself with and where you surrounded yourself. And that goes a, a long way to explain why they were so eager to change the wilderness around them. They didn't see the wilderness as beautiful. Like, they wouldn't go on nature They saw walks. it as a threat to, like, literally the composition of their body. Yes, exactly. Whoa, wait, wait. Exactly. Why was I never taught this? See? Interesting I mean, history, honestly, right? Honestly, it, it, I mean, that doesn't excuse it, doesn't whatever, but that very tiny bit of information <laughs> adds a lot of motivation to a lot of things people did in the early months. You know, if like your very yeah. simple concept of biology, I mean, that's, that's bizarre to me that that is not something that is mentioned because it literally affects their decision-making skills. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, and it, it leads to some really poor choices, clearly, oh, yeah. right, by English settlers <laughs> yes. in many respects. But it's really interesting because Hannah does other, so other captives go out of their way to prove that they haven't been changed by living with, the, with, living with Native Americans. Mm-hmm. Like the Mary Rawlinson character who I mentioned earlier, right, the super, super devout one, she really emphasizes that they are barbarians, they are heathens, she is a Christian woman and she has remained so. But Hannah kind of goes off in another direction. She literally becomes almost an Indian herself yeah. because she uses their own weapons and acts exactly the same way they do in warfare. So do you think and maybe so that's why she, the mind. why she may may have taken it to the extreme of like, clearly I could not have changed too much because I'm willing to eliminate all of them, to murder all of them. I guess, but she does so like an Indian. Yeah. Yeah. It's, well, oh, there's so many layers here. <laughs> I know. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. So, so they're still debating it in Haverhill oh, about sure. what her legacy should be. There's been several petitions by the Dustin family to name schools after her, to name streets in her honor, right? They had... Like that um, probably doesn't go too well. No, I mean, clearly that the local Abenaki tribe of people, Not right? Yeah. Descendants of those that she killed every time are there to step up and argue back. Yeah. Just until a few years ago, in the Haverhill Public Library in the gift shop, they were selling... These. Oh! <gasps> Hannah Dustin bobblehead dolls. Oh, oh no! Goodness. It was like bad, and then it was a bobblehead, and she... then it was even. It was so much worse. <laughs> oh my god, that is a bobblehead. Yeah. Oh my god, you yeah. have She's to. Got a you hatchet. have to send me a. You have to send me a picture of that. That's I am slightly ashamed that I own this, but it sits on my yeah. desk at work. Well, and yeah, and it's then a it's a it's, conversation it's, starter. It is. I mean, a a very interesting story in history. Very poignant and pertinent because it talks about the people of the time especially this woman who goes against these these strong strong puritanical values and which is you know admirable and breaks from the norm in the sense that she is not adhering to these you know 
I don't have any agency and I can only exist through Mm -hmm. prayer and whatnot. But there is a difference between, wow, what kind of a badass, crazy broad and some and, you know, glorifying someone who did a mass murder. Yeah, there's a there's a difference between an I survived story and a I am the murderer. Yeah. Or to make a mur- what is it? Uh make to make making a murderer? Yeah. This is like an episode of I survived versus making yeah. a murderer. Yeah. So, I think I think we can all agree that she crosses that line, right? Yeah. From survivor to becoming, right? Yeah. To, yeah. to taking it way too far and becoming a murderer. That's why they don't sell these anymore. I got one of the last few ones. <laughs> They used to come in a whole set. Oh, there were Native Americans with the most offensive headdresses no. you can imagine. Oh, no. They, they did have their scalps, though, still attached. Okay, I was going to oh, say, goodness. that would have been, like, I could see, I remember when I was a kid, there was, like, I the, the all the dolls, and it was like, oh, this one you can feed, or this one it cries, or whatever, like, having, like, a detachable. <laughs> like, I could see them trying to do that. I'm really glad that they didn't. I'm very glad yeah, they did not. That would add a whole new level oh, to be a real something bad that is already one. offensive and in poor yeah. taste. Yeah. Yeah. So I have a question. Yes. What about Mary Neff? Oh, yeah. Like, what about, like, her kind of legacy and role in it? Or did, like, or did Hannah get home and be like, I did all, I did all the murder and Mary Neff just was my sidekick and cheered me on from the sidelines yeah it's really tough to know mary neff is kind of an enigma so she she's a widow right she Mm -hmm. becomes a she's a right she's a widow from before she's even taken she's working as a midwife to support herself she gets some money from the scalps but not nearly as much as hannah does she gets like a fifth of what hannah does Mm -hmm. it seems clear that hannah was the ringleader and both hannah mary and sam back up that story that hannah was the one Mm -hmm. and really in all of the tellings hannah really sort of you know overshadows mary and mary sort of falls by the wayside in these tellings but i mean we have to assume that mary took an active role in the murders too yeah Mm -hmm. right i mean i don't know one woman couldn't over overcome 10 native americans even though six of them were children well and even though they get attacked when they were sleeping you have to imagine they would start to wake up well and that's what i'm thinking too is and again i'm thinking of this cinematically where anytime there's like one person going against like even three or ten people it's this huge fight scene and i'm going after this guy and then i've got two guys over here and even if she did that while they were asleep First of all, she's got probably got so much adrenaline going through her, but also I'm assuming she has never killed anyone before. So that's got to be a bit of a shock. So it's like, oh, you're dead. Oh, no. Now I need to go kill a bunch of other people. Like, that's that's a lot of moving parts. Yeah. To, and it's a lot of moving around in general. Exactly. Like, like, every time you see a fight scene, it's these, like, crazy choreographed and, like, killers and then there's this woman who seemingly has no combat training and is just kill I don't know. Wow. Well, and even if she did, wouldn't have any tomahawk or hatchet combat training. Uh, yeah. Like unfamiliar unfamiliar act, unfamiliar weapon yeah. aside from uh like Emily said, like butchering livestock. Yeah. Whoa. So I mean it's it, it makes it all the more you know insidious because clearly she and Mary Neff waited long enough to lull these Native Americans into a false sense of security. Uh, right? Yeah. They were sleeping, yeah. 
They were sleeping with their weapons out and available to be taken. Right? They had clearly let down their guard. And I think Hannah and Mary waited long enough for them to do so before they struck. Which is, you know. Yeah, that's got that's that, even more cringy. That's intentional too, you know? The mm-hmm. it's it's yeah, it seems more of not, oh, the situation has presented itself as all right, let's lay some groundwork yeah. here. Yeah, it's very premeditated. <laughs> because it's pre-manipulated. Yes. Would actually be more accurate. So Hannah also got a silver tankard from the governor of Maryland, randomly enough, to congratulate her for her deed. In general, at the time, she was considered a hero. Clearly, we see it you know, slightly differently now. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you want to, like I said, you can still go and see the Hannah, the Dustin Garrison house. You can go and get a map of their travels from um, the the Haverhill Public Library and see exactly where she went and sort of drive the path yourself. Um, you can go to, there's a museum in Haverhill where they claim to have um, the scalp cloth that she wrapped their scalps in. But of course, it's one of like 10 different scalp cloths that people claim are quote unquote authentic. Right. Um, I don't and I'm need such to a dork. That. I've I'm done good. most of these things. So, yeah. It, it's so interesting to me. I'm, I'm drawing a lot of comparisons to. Sybil Luddington, who was, I think, the first um, topic that I chose when we first started the yep, podcast. Yep, that was episode one. That's right. And she you was... Did, you did Sybil and I did Wilma Mankiller. Oh, Wilma, Wilma. Mankiller. She didn't kill any men, though. Um, she did not. But she was during the Revolutionary War, so about 100 years after this time. But she was known for... She essentially did the... Paul Revere. The ride of Paul Revere, right, but in New York. Exactly, and farther. Um, And, you know, granted, she didn't kill anyone, but framing things within the context of, I mean, in comedy, we talk about punching up all the time, right? You know, you're not going to make fun of someone who is already marginalized or made fun of. Um, Talking about heroes in history, are you a hero or a villain at the time? Based on now, we know that the tables were turned and I don't know. That's so interesting to me because now we would never be like, that was a good thing to do. And even then you said it took a lot of hurdles to convince everyone that that was a good thing, but it was still at the time she was praised for it. Well, and it was, the hurdles were more, Less about what the action that she had taken, although it was children, but more about her as a person. Yeah. Right. So getting past those sort of character obstacles right. to use her narrative were more difficult for Cotton Mather, I would I would argue. Okay. Because remember, I mean, you mentioned before that she's breaking a lot of sort of the norms of Puritans at the time. One norm that she isn't breaking is basically being prone to violence. We think of the Puritans as being these peaceful people. They were not. Yeah. Right? They had public executions. They had they committed acts of genocide against native peoples. They were mm-hmm. not against public floggings in the middle of the town square for things like fornication. Right? These were not nonviolent people by any means. Right. There's a story from the Pequot War where one of the leaders of the colony, John Winthrop, probably the most important leader at the time, marched with a group of soldiers to the Pequot Fort at Mystic, Connecticut, now Mystic, burned the fort to the ground with the Pequot people stuck inside, right, like 400 of them, and shot anyone who tried to escape and basically watched these people burn to death inside the fort and praised God 
for basically blessing them with this victory. Ugh. That's the those are that's the Puritans right there. So so they weren't really concerned with her killing ten Native Americans. It was that she was a woman, and it's that she profited from it. Well, they didn't even seem to mind the profiting from it, but the fact that she's a woman, that she was sort of taking this action on her own, yeah. that she mm-hmm. wasn't a church member at the time, right? those were the obstacles more than the violence itself. So I'm sure this is an entirely, could be an entirely other uh, episode, but why do we, why do we gloss over and forget that the Puritans were extraordinarily violent people? Because when we think of them, we think of them as like, nerdy little like we're just gonna yeah, like pray. nice chase yeah <laughs> well i think the story that i just told you is the actual sort of real story of, of what they would call a thanksgiving right so the Puritans yeah. didn't call um feast days thanksgivings mm. right they would call it a harvest feast right and so they called that a day of thanksgiving literally giving thanks to god But the Mm -hmm. story that we really like to tell ourselves about the Puritans does come from the 19th century retelling of the first Thanksgiving, right? That's the comforting narrative that we tell ourselves as Americans. That's what we want to be associated with. Not people who commit acts of genocide against men, women, and children in a fort in Mystic, Connecticut. Yeah. Yeah. Because this doesn't seem out of the norm for what we know of the Puritans or what the Puritans were like. But so it's a very intentional narrative change after all of this. Very very much so. I mean, when the Puritans came over, they came over with a fully stocked arsenal of weapons and armor. Right? The Mayflower was a fully stocked, basically armored vessel. Yeah. But wow. We don't tell those stories anymore. Yeah. I think I'm I think I mentioned it very briefly in whatever oh whatever episode came out close to Thanksgiving last year, if I had to guess, it would be the episode that uh, with the Iroquois Confederacy casts and um, the uh, occupation of Alcatraz. I think I very briefly talk about how on that episode, because it was coming out the week of Thanksgiving, we did not want to do a story of Thanksgiving, yeah. uh, of, of early Thanksgivings. But I mention, um, I think it's actually, I think... It's either on the dollop or last podcast on the left. Honestly, they probably both have done Thanksgiving, but they, on one of them, they, they walk through like the first three Thanksgivings and, uh, and walk through what they were actually like. And, and one of them, I recall there being an anecdote about Puritans, uh, playing like settlers playing soccer in the street with the head of a decapitated Native American. Yeah. So, different narrative. A little bit of a, of a, a twist different. from what we know. Um, I, I have to I have to interject with something that's a very light pivot. But Rip texted me from beyond the <laughs> beyond the screen, uh, beyond the his muted uh, channel at this moment. Uh, just to, and he texted us to say this sounds like the story of the founding of Pawnee uh, from Parks and Recreation, which, to be fair, is is a like not not probably heavily satirized version of a lot of foundings of towns uh, because I don't remember the full story of the founding of Pawnee, but I know that the founding is like 
around the very egregious abuses of the Wamapoke tribe mm-hmm. um, and misogyny. Yeah, and there's that there's that mural in yeah. like the city hall building that oh they're always God. walking by yes. the scenes, and you're just this just grotesque mural. Or they right? do yeah, the like the this is the it's like a very beautiful like oh there's a family on a hill in front of the settlement, and then they pan out and it's like <laughs> yes. mass yeah. murder and I love mayhem. That show. Oh, God, I miss that show. That show made me believe in the government, or have <laughs> hopes, at least, yeah. that it could be good. That show made me believe in Indiana. Public service. Uh, oh, no, <laughs> Indiana. <laughs> so that's all I have on Hannah Dustin, other than in 2006, they had a music festival in Haverhill, and they used the image of her and the statue, but they took out the tomahawk and put it in a place an image of a guitar holding a guitar. Okay. <laughs> Which, of course, you know, led to protests by, again, the local Abenaki peoples. I'm sure. Of the area. Yeah. God. I wonder if the organizers, like, thought, I want, like, I, I want to go and find an article about that now and, like, kind of, like, read about what the, what the argument was, like, what the, tr- what the attempted defense of it was, like, whether they thought that they were, it, they were making some sort of commentary by using it or like reclaiming it or whatever. Or they just were like, it looks a cool. Statue of this yeah. This I get, the argument now is that the statue itself is sort of representative of Haverhill, that it's sort of morphed beyond the story of Hannah mm. herself because it's been there since 1879. Yeah. Right. Um, but you know, I don't, I don't exactly buy it. Yeah. So I have a question. Uh, you, unlike everyone, who's guested on the podcast or the more majority of people are an actual historian and you study and teach history. So you're probably rocking a lot of primary sources, right? <laughs> yes. Okay. Also, do you have a subscription to JSTOR? Oh yeah. Oh my course. God. It's my favorite thing I don't ever. think you can, I think, I think when you like graduate with your masters, even they hand you a subscription. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I have mine through DePaul. Yeah. As a yeah. faculty member there, I get all the access that I want. We've been talking about sources a lot lately, especially with um, one of our recent episodes who the person was actually related to the story. They were related to the person in the story they were telling. So they had diaries like of their great, 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 grandmother Mm -hmm. oh that's Um, so cool yeah and and i mean the majority of natalie and i's uh and most of our guests um research is coming from you know we usually i usually start on wikipedia get the general outline and then move to articles and whatnot but it does make such a difference and i'm also always so interested with not just the stories people tell from history, but how we get the stories and the resources. And a primary resource is so much different and more information and a different perspective than yeah. a copy of well, a copy. And it, and it provides context to the story itself. Because I did a, a story earlier in the season about the Mad Queen of Madagascar. And like her story is written. She was She did not write. Uh, and so her like she, her story was written by people who tried to kill her and her enemies and or people whose families she had slaughtered. So it's like there's color there, like of whose whose narrative this is. Mm. 
So I was actually going to ask, I know Cass is probably asking, like, what are some of the sources? Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to share those. And then I was going to be like, when you, when you were saying the narrative says, I was I was very much like, whose narrative? <laughs> yes. So it is Cotton Mather's narrative. That's where basically all okay. the information about Hannah Dustin is coming from. It's unclear if she was literate or not. Right. Um, a lot of people in early New England could read, but a lot of them could not write, especially women. A lot of people were taught to read so they could read the Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Um, so he, as part, the first time I, th- I believe it appears as part of his larger work called Magnalia Christi Americana. Um, I have the published version right here. Um, he calls it a notable exploit, Du Feminina Facti, which is Latin for a woman, the leader, and the achievement. Um, which I think is a really interesting title. Yeah. Um, no, no colons in that, in that title. There's a semicolon, but... Ah, no damn. Colons. Damn it, cotton. Damn it, cotton. <laughs> cotton. Um, I, um, I not only used the published version, but in doing some of my own research, uh, most of my stuff I got from the archive at the Massachusetts... Um, the Massachusetts uh, archive, which is... Um, you know, in Boston, and so I got mm-hmm. to go and see the original document, um, like through her original testimony as well, yeah. right? Oh, that's so um, So it's really interesting going through and sort of reading a lot of these early, yeah. um, you know, these primary sources, because they're all written in this really sort of elaborate form of calligraphy, which is really terrible to try to decipher <laughs> and damn near <laughs> impossible. Um, so when you when you start researching something, do you is there a methodical way you go about it? Do you just like give me everything and I'll try to read through it, or how do you kind of go about researching? Well, with Hannah, when I stumbled across her story, I actually stumbled across it in a, a work by another historian named Laurel Thatcher Ulrich in a, in a work <laughs> called Good Wives. She's the one who's the uh, seldom women or well-behaved, well-behaved women, women seldom, seldom make history. history. Is yes, is hers quote? Wait, She's Marilyn Monroe fantastic didn't say that. <laughs> yeah, Marilyn Monroe did not say that. She did not. Of course, Laurel Ulrich is talking about in that quote how she's lamenting that well-behaved women don't make history because the, the women that she writes about in general right, tend to live somewhat more mundane lives. Mm. Uh, Hannah Dustin is kind of an outlier for her. Wait, really? Mm. That's the context? Like, yeah, it's, it's not. Shame? Yes. Oh, yeah. weird. I love when people take idioms and twist them. Yeah, and I kind of prefer it the other way, honestly. Oh, yeah, I really absolutely. The, the really, you know, misbehaving ladies, of oh, yeah. course. Yeah. Um, but yeah, she talks about Hannah Dustin, and I, when I read the story, I was like, what is this? I yeah. have to know everything. And so I just tried to find all the sources I could. I went and found probate records for the Dustin family and the Emerson family so I could try to understand what their situation was. I'm the first scholar to make the comparison. Um, I used an ethnography of animal slaughter to try to understand physically how she could accomplish the task. Oh, like, wow. No one had really talked about that before. Um, you know, I, I think I explored the narrative in, in, in various different ways that have not been talked about previously yeah. because I dove so deeply into the primary sources mm-hmm. and I just wanted to know everything about this insane woman. Well, and that's another so. thing about history is it's storytelling. And if you yeah. stick with not stick with, because it sounds like altering or whatever. But if you only approach it from one direction, from one narrative, you're probably missing part of the story. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So as historians, also, we try to just gain as, we try to gather as much source material as we can from as many different mm-hmm. sources as we can. Because we know that every source we're going to find is going to have a bias of some type. And the only way that you can try to cancel that out is just to try to find as many different ways to approach a story as you can. Yeah. It's also amazing what 
how, like how deep of research you can do when you're actually interested in the subject matter. Yes. <laughs> yeah. We joke around um, that we're like when we, especially this season. This season is the first season we've had guests. That we're we we're we're inviting you to do homework <laughs> and then come on our podcast and share your homework, which for our guests that are like musicians and filmmakers and actors and like not people who are doing like who are historians is feels like a big ask but we've been blessed that we've like asked the right people and like the right people have been excited to come on and also we've we've opened the the floodgates of saying like you decide what is the history that you want to share this is we'd like to focus on we say underrepresented and overlooked uh people and events but if there's something that interests you, it has a history. A lot of people get stuck on like history and just think of like dusty old history books and old white dudes and battles. Which brings and me back to the opening tag. History. Of- Is it in you? <laughs> I don't I don't like you bringing it back to that after I said old white men. Oh, oh, oh. I just meant, is the story inside of you. When you find something that excites you, it's so much easier to delve in and realize that everything is history and you don't need to just limit it to this. And everything has a history, yeah. 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 And it's it's nice because you didn't didn't have to do homework because you, I guess you did because you wrote an entire book, but... (laughs) That was we didn't have. Yeah, to I, did, I did a lot of homework. We didn't have, yeah, you didn't have to do homework specifically f- for us. Speaking of my book, you can pre-order it on Barnes and Noble or Amazon oh. or yeah, any yeah, number yeah. of online locations. Yes, yes, yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, no, but I am actually having an event at Women and Children First Bookstore in Chicago. For oh, I love locals. that bookstore. Yeah, they're having a book signing for me September 11th. Um, assuming we're no longer under quarantine, who knows right. if it's going to be happening. But yeah, I would love it if you guys came. Absolutely, book yeah. signing. It's like a sort of a launch party sort of deal. <gasps> Wonderful. And can you so, can you um, give a title of your book again and all the platforms and whatnot? Do a little book pitch for us again. Sure. I mean, if you guys aren't ready to wrap up quite yet, then I can keep answering your questions. But oh. Oh, I mean, I did have a quick question oh, that it, has nothing to do sp- with Hannah Dustin specifically. You mentioned, um, it's funny because like Cass said, we we often ask people like if they do have a passing interest in history, like what, what always kind of made them tick in history class and what they were interested in. Um, and you mentioned that you didn't like, you didn't necessarily love studying history or like, like the way that it was taught growing up. So I'm curious why and kind of when did your educational trajectory go down a history route? And then also, like, when did you decide to pursue that from a more professional perspective as well? Well, I originally was going into law school. I assumed that I wanted to be um, an attorney. And I... Uh, I worked at an immigration law firm for several years, which I actually really enjoyed. Um, but the part I really liked is I, I worked on asylum cases, and a lot of that is crafting a narrative of someone's life. And so I would interview people, clients, and basically you know, write an essay about why these people deserve asylum and write the history of these individuals. And so I went so cool. to law school for a year at DePaul, um, and I, I did okay, but I 
really did not enjoy it. The only class I liked was constitutional law, because of course, it's all history. Yeah. And um, eventually I just started sort of reading history on my own. Um, and, you know, I just, I, th- I just had this epiphany one day, like, I do not want to stay here. So I dropped out of law school. Um, and I just thought, you know, can I actually do this as a job? Like, can I, can I pursue this interest, you know, in a professional capacity? And so I, you know, I applied to the DePaul master's program, uh, and I got in and I started taking classes and I just, I really loved it. Um, and I got to know some of the faculty. It's funny now because I'm faculty there myself at this point. And so yeah. I get to interact with some of my former professors, right, as a professor as well. <laughs> um, yeah, and they were super encouraging. And they just said, you know, your work is, your stuff's good. You seem to have a knack for this. You should probably apply for a PhD program. Um, you know, so I did. I got into U Chicago and I said, okay, I'm going to give this a shot. And I guess the rest is all she wrote. It's history. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I hate myself. <laughs> what was your what was your um what was your master's thesis kind of area on? Uh, my master's project was actually I had not narrowed onto New England yet. It was actually about um, colonial Virginia, which is another area of interest that I have. I think my next work is going to be a comparison of um, colonial women in sort of in the colonial South versus the North uh, in terms of how they approach violence. Clearly there's, you know, the sort of the large scale, um, you know, slave system in the South that really sort of changes a lot of the dynamics there. And so I was actually looking into um, a woman named Lucy Bird and her husband. um, And so the birds are sort of this really famous um, couple from down there. He was the founder of Richmond, incredibly wealthy plantation owners. And he left a series of really, really detailed journals that really tell a lot about not only his sort of point of view as an 18th century plantation owner in the South at the time, um, his name's William Bird II, uh, but they also tell a lot about, about him, his relationship with his wife, Lucy. Um, and so my, that, my project at DePaul was just looking at basically her life and trying to decipher her story from these journals. Because, of course, there's nothing of hers that's written yeah. or left or preserved. So, so I was trying, trying to, to like sort of read her, through the evidence. Yeah. Yeah. Pull her out of his narrative. Yeah. And she also happens to be a, an incredibly violent woman herself. So I don't know where that comes from. <laughs> my fascination with violence. <laughs> uh, twisted, but... I love on the on the DePaul uh, faculty website, uh, it lists like teaching interests for all the faculty, um, which, hey, hey, DePaul faculty or hey, history professors everywhere. We'd love to have you on. But I really loved like your list of your areas of interest. I don't remember what I put on there. It says, uh, early American history, women's history, histories of violence, and gender and sexuality. And I was like, this gonna be good. <laughs> and just, just for Cass, histories of violence, not the history of violence directed by David Cronenberg. Uh, starring Viggo um, Mortensen. I was wondering about that. Huh. <laughs> yes. Interesting that you go for Vigo. I, rem- I, I always think of Ed Harris first, for some reason. Wait, that's... They're both in it. Oh, I think it's because I have qualm. I heard very good thing. I've never seen the movie. Very good things about. Oh, so you can't tell me. You can't tell me exactly what year it was filmed in. Oh, history of violence. Wasn't that 
Hold on, hold on. I'm using it. This is a very weird talent that Cass has to be able to name the year that a film came out. Was it 2009 or 2005? It's 2005. Yes! To a movie she hasn't even seen. A movie I haven't even seen. Um, I believe Viggo Mortensen was either nominated for an Oscar or there was Oscar buzz. And he did amazing in it from what I saw. But I have a few qualms with his accent issues. But good overall. Russian is hard. I, I missed out on that one altogether. <laughs> Cass, you make no sense to me. You make no sense I to me I, too, am an enigma. <laughs> I, the, the wasted space in your, in your brain and mine, to be honest. <sighs> there is so much wasted right. space. <laughs> you can do that, and I can lit- recite any lyric to any Backstreet Boys song, so we each have our thing. Uh, have I, so... So we're in the quarantine, and I've been doing a lot of reading, and I actually surprisingly have not been reading any nonfiction. I usually kind of, like, alternate a lot in what I read, um, and usually, like, every third or fourth book I read is a little bit of, a little, little nonfic, <coughs> usually a Chicago history. Um, have you ever heard of the Girl Waits with Gun books? and Or have you heard, like, have you studied Con- Constance Cop? No, great name. I wasn't. I don't know if this right. Great name because she was like the first female law enforcement officer (gasps) in in maybe in New maybe I don't think anywhere. I think just like in New York. Natalie, hold on. What era? Topic. This is this is a little bit later. This and also New York, but uh, eighteen seventy eight to nineteen thirty one is her her time period. Wow, that's a long so career for anybody, let alone. Well, that's not her whole career. That's like that's her lifespan. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, but yeah, she was she was the uh, she was like the first um, uh, the, she was the first cop in female cop in New Jersey. Is that it? I just a friend recommended that like the whole it's a whole book series. There's a book series a fictional book series that is based on um that's about her and her family and her sisters um and so i just i just wasn't sure because i was like that's new england what's the what's the name of it again the book series is called yeah. girl waits with a gun okay um, constance cup c-u-p no constance cup oh i and thought it was, she, i was like cop and then the she cup? a cop cup the cop yeah it's written by it's written by Amy Stewart and I um who oh god what else did Amy Stewart write so many things um, so I was actually thinking about um, turning the Hannah Dustin story into a graphic novel <gasps> that, that was would one be one of graphic. my own projects too um, just to make it more accessible for students oh yeah but I think I'd have to tread really lightly around one particular scene if you know what I mean yeah I think yeah. so yeah yeah a little bit and and make but, it tasteful yet dramatic. Yes. Yeah. Because that is kind of, you know, rife for visuals. <laughs> I thought, yeah. I mean, I thought so. You kept yeah. describing it as like cinematic. And yeah. 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 I think it, I think it would be perfect for that type of a medium. Mm. Well, I think that you did a great job painting, painting the picture for us here. Cass always says that podcasting is a visual medium. <laughs> um, and, and we proved it. We proved it. <laughs> As I stopped eating my food because... <laughs> yes. Mission accomplished. <laughs> yeah. 
You got me to put down my rice bowl. Um, thank you so much. Uh, just to just to reiterate, uh, Emily's book w- is coming out August twenty eighth. Mm-hmm. Correct. It's called "The Virtuous and Violent Women of Seventeenth Century Massachusetts." Yes. So and where can everyone pre-order? Yeah, if you can get it from Women and Children first, it's not out yet, um, but it's also available on on major online retailers, so Amazon. Uh, Barnes and Noble, they already are allowing people to pre-order, even though it's not even hot off the presses yet. Um, there's a hard copy, there's a hard um, cover book, and a, and a paperback as well. So there's two versions. The paperback is significantly cheaper than the hardback. As they often are. Yes. <laughs> uh, well, when I think that by the time this episode comes out, I think, it, I think listeners, you are currently probably in August, um, or maybe earlier August, so... By that logic, I feel like you would probably be able to pre-order at Women and Children First by now as well, because they usually have a pretty good pre- pre-order window. Yeah, I hope so. They said they would be ordering some copies to have for the book signing as well, so they should be available, um, I think, pretty soon after the book comes out. Wonderful. Yeah. That's so exciting. I cannot imagine writing a book that everything actually has to be researched and accurate. <laughs> Well, it, it took a heck of a long time. Oh, yeah. It took a lot of work, but it's a labor of love. So a few other things in the book are um, there's a chapter on the Essex County witch trials, if that's <gasps> interesting to you. Um, I call it Essex County because, of course, it expanded far beyond Salem. Right? Most people yeah. are unaware. Um, so, you know, if there's a, there's a chapter on domestic violence. There's a chapter on infanticide, which clearly gets a little bit dark. Yeah. Um, there's a chapter where I really um, rip Cotton Mather a new one, so that's you know kind of refreshing <laughs> in the end of the book. Looking forward to that <laughs> chapter. Does does he does he come up in like other all like in these other narratives a lot or just you mentioned his family comes up a lot but like does he specifically come up in like a lot of these other stories oh yeah yeah he and his father increase love to use other people's stories to as teaching tools and propaganda it's a bold so move cotton with, let's see if it pays off for him so one of the things <laughs> nice. sorry i know i, I always think that when i hear the name cotton <laughs> especially with you and your hat yes <laughs> i know if only it were a visor it's perfect <laughs> Uh, so he actually wrote an execution sermon for Hannah's sister, Elizabeth, that he gave right before she like swung on the gallows um, for committing infanticide. So that was, that was Cotton Mather, too. My word, Cotton Mather just inserting himself in all of these troublesome women's stories. <laughs> yeah, stealing, their, stealing their thunder. What's the Mather with him? I hate you so much. I'm out. That's it. I'm done. I'm done. That's it. Emily's like, I'm out. That's it. Emily's like, nope, nope. That's it. No more. Oh, man. What a perfect Uh, way. Cut the lights, draw the curtain. Show's over. Just. We just oh, hear man. like the sound of a uh, of like the mic disconnecting. <laughs> just silence on my end. I'm out. Feedback. <laughs> well, on that note of me being disappointed to know Casmar, uh, that's been Casmar. I've been Natalie Younger, our wonderful guest, Doctor Emily Romeo. Thank you very uh, much. Thank you for legitimizing us and for sharing sharing some history with us. Uh, folks at home, 
you can you'll be able to find a bunch of fun visual aids and whatnot in the show notes as always but then also we'll be posting them on social media so give us a follow at shared pod on twitter and instagram um we'll also post about uh the about the book signing about the book so basically if we mentioned it and you were like wait wait i don't have a pen it should be in the show notes or on the social medias i promise (laughs) fingers crossed i don't forget anything uh as always if you have any questions corrections or suggestions where can you send them Cass? am i allowed to talk now (laughs) am i not in time out anymore (laughs) you're not in time out because you know i hate doing the email address (laughs) you can uh send us any questions corrections or suggestions at shared history podcast at gmail.com i did it we did it we know our email address (laughs) Um, thank you again so much, Emily. It's been a delight. Thank you. Um, it's been great. And as we as we sign off our episode, Cass, share you later. A million thank yous to Dr. Romeo for joining us. We did a pretty thorough outro in the recording, but just a quick reminder that Emily's book, The Virtuous and Violent Women of 17th Century Massachusetts, is available starting August 28th of this, the plague's year of 2020. At time of episode release, her event at Women and Children's First in the Andersonville neighborhood of Chicago is still on for September 11th. Though many of their events have shifted to the virtual space, so it might be amended for current circumstances, just keep an eye on our social media at SharedPod. We will try to get you any updates as soon as we have them. Though I can confirm it's available for pre-order through Women and Children's First, so go support your local bookstores. Also, speaking of books, because I'm always speaking of books, If you want to learn more about Cotton Mather, his family, their role in anti-black racist ideology, and also just some other problematic ideas of the time similar to what Emily tells us of the colonists' view of the wilderness being able to change you on a biological level, Stamped from the Beginning by Dr. Ibram X. Kendi is available as an audiobook for free on Spotify right now. I've been listening to it and enjoying it, and I highly recommend it. Also, last but certainly not least, later this week, we have some bonus content headed your way if you are a Patreon subscriber. So scurry on over to patreon.com slash arcade audio. Tell them that you love and listen to us and you can get access to those episodes as they come out. Thanks for listening and share you later. Thank you for playing Arcade Audio. Play more at arcadeaudio.net.